Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how COVID-19 brought misinformation to Ireland. It's a special episode of The Explainer this time out, as we gather together a panel of experts for a webinar and live recording recently. The Journal began fact-checking in the capital F sense of the word back in 2016. It was, however, before the Trump and Brexit votes. In fact, it was before our own general election at the beginning of that year. But we were obviously tapping into something that was happening around the world. In the four years since, though, we haven't had a massive Brexit or Trump moment. That is, until COVID-19 happened, and we saw misinformation on a scale that those topics had brought to the UK and the US. So we thought it was time to pause and take stock of what that means for Ireland. So we thought it was time to pause and take stock of that and what it means for Ireland. How are we susceptible to fake news on this topic but not others? And is misinformation at this level here to stay? With the support of the European Parliament, we set this discussion up to examine just those questions. I was joined by Christine Bogan, Deputy Editor of the Journal.ie and lead of our fact-checking initiative, Nicola Aitken, who is Head of Policy for Full Fact, a fact-checking organisation in the UK. She previously was the Head of Countering Disinformation for the UK Civil Service. We were also joined by Per Enerud, who is a journalist and works for the Europe External Action Service. His team on the EU East Stratcom Task Force detect, document and debunk disinformation spread by pro-Kremlin sources. And to complete our lineup is Billy Kelleher, MEP for Ireland South. He is a member of the Renew Group, which has written a paper on Europe's fight against misinformation and has also written for the journal.ie on the topic. I started by asking Nicola what we mean when we say misinformation. Yeah, it's absolutely a really important question. For us, misinformation is information which is being inadvertently spread. So it's being spread without the intention to cause harm. People might not realise that it's false information or it's misleading. And I think that's the majority of what we've seen in the coronavirus pandemic. So it's your family members who are genuinely trying to pass on on information that they think will help, but unfortunately, ultimately, is, is false or misleading. Per, your experience in what you work in is slightly different. So just so people are aware, um, when people are talking on the panel, when you hear misinformation, what is your interpretation of it? Well, I think you're perfectly right. Misinformation is about the intent. It's a lack of intent for, for uh, spreading the line. In uh, the case of disinformation, we are working on a definition that is based on uh, the, it should be verified with false and it should be intended to harm. And we can see this is is orchestrated from the Kremlin, very well funded, very well organized, and it's intended to sow distrust in institutions and in national health system, etc. And for yourself, Billy, when you went over to Parliament in in July, this is an, an area that has really interested you. What kind of misinformation have you been interested in tackling? Well, I mean, it's amazing. We're slightly cocooned in Ireland, even though we're in the age of the internet. But I mean, when you go to Europe and you see firsthand, there's huge concerns, particularly as you go further east in the European Union, about the sphere of influence that Russia is having in disinformation and misinformation and just in terms of the meddling in the affairs of of, of other countries uh, through through social media, through the internet. uh, And that is an issue of, of real concern. So, for example, in COVID, quite recently, you would have seen a huge amount of disinformation around Europe not helping Italy or not helping Spain and that how the Russians and how the Chinese came to um, help the Italians and yet the Europeans didn't. And of course, if you actually drill through the statistics and the facts, uh, uh, that is um, disinformation at the highest level. 
But these things were being sown by people who are anti-European, uh, by entities who are anti-European, and just trying to undermine, the, I suppose, the harmony in Europe. So that would be one key area that just was very evident throughout the, the early stages of the COVID-19 crisis. And Christine, for yourself, from an Irish perspective, what is misinformation in Ireland? It, it tallies a lot with what Nicola was saying there about it's people who they think that they're trying to be helpful. They're trying to share information because they think that their family or friends might be able to use it or because someone else isn't telling them. Um, and I think Ireland's always been quite different to other countries because we've had such low levels of it. You know, we don't have dedicated outlets that spread misinformation. When there is false news, it rarely goes viral. Um, we found that when we talk to fact checkers in other countries, their experience is just um, so different. We've been very lucky that we don't see disinformation in Ireland, you know, where we see people deliberately trying to sow some chaos. Um, so I think Ireland, really, we've, just, we've never seen viral hoaxes or the kind of stories that you think of when you hear false news, like say, Pope Francis has endorsed Donald Trump, that kind of thing. But we also haven't seen recurrent themes emerging, which can act as a magnet for false stories. So say, if you think of how the UK has Brexit or the US has Trump, and in the rest of Europe, the big one has been migration. But Ireland has never really seen these big topics, which become, you know, like a, a nexus or a magnet for misinformation un until COVID happened. Do you know why that is? Or do you have any theories as to why that is? I don't know why, but I do, I do have theories. And I think <laughs> Part, I think the main thing is that we've never had the set of circumstances that has let false news flourish in other countries. So Ireland's politics is less partisan. We know that other countries would have seen big divides emerge in politics after the big recession. And this allowed false news to embed and to grow as, as people felt more alienated. We also know our news organizations are more balanced than other countries in their news coverage. So we don't see partisan news organizations spreading misinformation. And this is mainstream ones or more niche ones and hugely important and we can't take it for granted. But we also, we don't have public figures who set out to spread misinformation. So politicians, but then also people who just traffic in spreading these false stories and often have been given platforms to do so. So it could be the president of the United States. It could be a Katie Hopkins type. We just, we've been very lucky not to have that um, take on. We do have sites like the liberal, which people may know. We've, you know, we've, we do see some fascist white supremacists on social media but they're generally speaking to tiny audiences and they haven't broken through they're speaking to their own very very small bubbles the one times where we have seen some kind of more general um, misinformation has been around kind of time specific topics so if you think around like say the water charges protests and um, the abortion referendum uh, the jobstown trial they did attract some false stories but these would have faded away once the event had faded from the news they didn't stick around so I think the big question for Ireland is going to be, do we bounce back to normal um, once COVID, once we get through this pandemic, the way we did after other moments of misinformation, or has this just changed everything and is it just, is it here for good now? Because Per, you could probably talk about that European experience where it is there for good. What kind of phenomenon do, do European countries see and is it country specific or do you see kind of most of the, of the bloc seeing the, the same kinds of misinformation and disinformation? I think the uh, operatives, those who work on spreading disinformation, are getting better and better at focusing to a certain audience. We can see, for instance, five years ago when our group was set up, I have to, by the way, say that we are mainly concerned, we are mainly focusing on pro-Kremlin Russian disinformation, so other actors are there as, as well. But we see a better understanding on how to work with different audiences. So in order to be a good liar, you need to be a very good listener. So uh, the production of disinformation is based on understanding uh, grievances and discontent that is always ex already existent. 
I can take a very clear example connected to the COVID-19 case, and this is the 5G uh, topic, which in the beginning of the pandemic never occurred in the pro-Kremlin, Russia-based disinformation efforts. After a few weeks, when the productive, the productions understood that this is an, an existent, existent conspiracy, they started to add uh, the 5G topic to their efforts to spread disinformation. So it's a very, um, very agile and, and, and well-organized organization. Nicola, in your uh, experience of disinformation in the UK, does it align more with what Christine is saying about what happens in Ireland or more what Per is saying is what, what happens in Europe? I think it's a mixture of the two. I mean, I think we do have to remember that um, false and misleading information is, is not new. As, as much of a cliche as that is, I will be the first person to say it, I'm afraid. And, you know, Fact has been around for 10 years now and we've been fact-checking for that long because there has been mis misleading information in the public debate for that long. Um, obviously, what's changed is the, the methods by which people are getting their information and sharing information. In terms of disinformation specifically, I think that Per is absolutely right that a lot of the hostile actors in this space are opportunistic and they pick up on the events which um, you know, are, are already in public discourse. To go back to, to the example that you raised on 5G, Full Fact actually published a report last June um, which said, we think that there's a lot of 5G misinformation out there and we think this is going to become a problem at some point. Unfortunately, you know, that was proven true earlier this year with COVID. Um, so a lot of these things are not new. A lot of the stories that we've seen are not new. Um, and I think that we need to be a bit better at preempting what might come. What could that preempting look like? I think it's exactly um, like the example for 5G. So you know, we, um, through the, the Facebook third party fact checking program, which Full Fact is a part of, as is, um, you know, the journal and, and many others across Europe, um, through that we see a lot of stories that are being flagged as potentially false. Um, and I think when you see the patterns in that, you see the posts that are maybe getting small engagement now, um, actually, you know, you can track that over time and see where it may be starting to, to grow. And I think early warning is one of the most important and most effective things that we can do in this space. Um, if we're aware of it, then we can put out the, the right information, the, the correct information before it really takes hold. Christine, just to focus on COVID for a few minutes, because as you said, it really became our moment for misinformation. Can you run us through what exactly happened in Ireland? What was the scale of it? What were the big false stories? And were there any early warning signs that Nicola is, is talking about there? Yeah, I think the scale is interesting because it really felt like it just exploded and almost overnight, just to give an idea of, of the scale. Like, it's very hard to put exact numbers on it at all. But to give one idea, um, we set up a phone number so that people could send us on any dodgy messages that they were sent on WhatsApp so that we could fact check them and debunk them. And we got over 800 messages in the first weekend in, in mid-March. And I think we had not expected that at all. We had no idea it was, it was that big. I think that's when it became clear that all of these buttresses or things that we had in place to stop false news, like our balanced media and our lack of partisanship, it didn't really matter. You know, they, they helped to delay it, but they weren't a protection against it. And um, there was this audience of people who wanted to share the misinformation. There were platforms that let them do it. And that was it. That was what was needed. So I think you can divide the COVID misinformation stories in Ireland into two waves. And the first wave is all based around anxiety. This is just an example of one of the messages that we were sent. Um, I think we got this sent like 80 times in one day. Um, on one day in March. And this was just 
I think three days after Leo Varadkar's big speech. It's like saying, um, I got this from Agartha. Um, it's going to be a full lockdown. Um, you're going to be not going to be able to get into um, shops. You need to start stockpiling food. It was all these kind of scaremongery things. And this is just so typical of the kind of messages that were rooted in this, this wave of anxiety. Um, a lot of these messages would have had um, they cite an authority figure like this one mentions Agartha or the ones talk about um, defence forces figures. They'll say things like there's going to be a full lockdown on the streets, that people need to stock up in food and water, um, that the government wasn't telling people about cases in hospitals. And they were so common. They were so they were shared by so many people on WhatsApp. I would imagine that most people here who were in Ireland would have seen at least one of them telling them that something um, was being kept from them. Um, so that's the first wave. And if that one's based around anxiety, the second wave would be based more on distrust in institutions and authorities. So the first wave would have started in kind of February, peaked in around March. The second wave, it started in April and we're still in the middle of it. So I think it's very hard to say, you know, are we in the peak? Are we, you know, are we past the peak? I don't know when the peak is basically, um, because there's so much of it. And it's about distrust in governments and health authorities, billionaires, financial institutions. Um, it's often conspiracy theories. So there's a whole Facebook group in Ireland at the moment that's been growing um, steadily. Um, and it talks about how the pandemic is being used to stop people from, um, to basically, sorry, to turn Ireland into a cashless society. So it's the government trying to get everyone to use their cards instead. So you can be tracked by banks and by, um, by governments and they'll always know where you are and how you're spending your money. Um, and Ireland would never have seen this kind of misinformation before. We never saw these pages. Um, we've seen ones about like Bill Gates being hauled up before the International Criminal Court. And again, these would have been tiny, like if they were shared in Ireland at all before coronavirus, it would have been tiny, like such a small audience. And now it's, it's just racking up more, like they're racking up more shares, they're racking up more comments. Um, and if the, the first wave was much more of a general audience, like everyone was sharing them with friends and family. This wave is smaller, but they're a very activated group of people. Like this example of um, the message here, it's it kind of, it's a, it's a very classic one. It has it's about like three different conspiracy theories in one message. It starts off saying that COVID-19 is a bacteria. It ends by saying you can treat it with aspirin. There's some mention of Bill Gates there in the middle. And this is very typical. And I think, the problem with this is that the first wave was very easy to fact check. Like if, if we saw a message that said there's a lockdown or that says you could treat coronavirus with drinking tea, we could say, okay, we can fact check that, that's straightforward. But when we see a message like this that says, you know, 10 different things, it's very difficult for fact checkers to try and do their job with that. And also I think the other bar is that people who are sharing these second wave messages, they're not necessarily going to believe fact checks. You know, if they believe that Bill Gates is behind coronavirus, just because we say, no, we checked this, he's not, you know, it, it's not man-made. They're not going to be the ones saying, oh, my mistake, I will, I will not share this message anymore. Um, so it's very difficult. It's very difficult for um, fact-checkers at the moment, I think. Nicola, when you were fact-checking in the UK for COVID, was your experience similar to that of Christine's or what was the majority of your fact-checking team spending their time on? Yeah, I think it's very similar, um, particularly the claims, um, I'm sorry, the breadth of claims that you mentioned there, Christine. Um, we also saw the, the the kind of list posts where you would have sort of 10 claims in the one Facebook post. And it's really difficult for us to be able to fact check that. Um, the, I think the other thing I would say is that there's a real difficulty in making sure that you have the expertise um, to be able to fact check and be able to fact check quickly. So Phil Fact was really lucky that we had an epidemiologist on our staff at the beginning of the year when the outbreak first started. Um, but otherwise, it's been really difficult to get access to the medical expertise to give a view on whether these claims 
you know, have any accuracy to it. Things like argling salt water can help. That was a claim that I know spread across Europe, but actually, you know, it was really hard to get a, a medical voice to say definitively, you know, yes or no, does that help? So that's definitely been, been tough. I think we've seen a lot, or what's been really interesting is that a lot of the, the stories or the, a lot of the claims that have been spreading across um, different countries have, have been very, very similar. So again, you mentioned Bill Gates, we've spoke about 5G. These are all claims that we've seen in the UK as well. Um, you know, anti-vaccination claims, it's, it's all the same stuff and it's all um, you know, tying into the same uh, fears and anxieties that you mentioned there, Christine. So yeah, it's been a very similar, difficult experience. Over the last few years, one of the things that we've noticed is a lot of our fact checks are fact checking politicians or government or things like you know, um, the government built over the last five years. Um, for coronavirus, we were doing fewer fact checks about particular statements from state authorities or from government. Was that the same in the UK? Um, so I think we started off in the pandemic with doing a lot more of the claims that we saw on social media, and um, particularly through, through the third party fact checking program on Facebook, as I've mentioned before. Um, so a lot of conspiracy theories, but that sort of died down a little bit. And, um, you know, the newspapers aren't publishing those claims, um, which, is, which is really helpful. So we are fact checking um, a lot of the, the statements that government are putting out. So things like the the statistics around testing figures is, is, is an example of um, claims that we will check. But I think that's, that's more like our bread and butter, actually. You know, we're, it's, it's easier to, to fact check statistics like that than these conspiracy theories on Facebook. There's kind of two, the two waves that Christine talked about there. The kind of first is more misinformation that people are sharing for, um, with their friends and family. And then there's the disinformation. Do you have theories or do you have research into who creates both waves? Are they the same people that create both waves? Why do people create these messages that end up going viral on WhatsApp or Facebook or um, other social media platforms? One of the challenges with this job is that basically people tend not to compute facts, but rather stories. So the producers of disinformation, they create, they are not really producing lies, they're producing attractive stories about, for instance, the corrupt government or powerful uh, big pharma corporations, etc. This all sounds very nasty and you, you create this kind of, of stories that are attractive to produce and as a those who relay these, these stories they, they they feel that they are taking part in a campaign for truth actually than rather spreading lies so so the, the core problem here is to to be able to to counter these attractive stories about the big conspiracies the powerful elites the bankers, the whoever are spreading these things. This is the, this is the challenge and this is why disinformation so easily spread. Really, is there appetite in Europe? Has that appetite grown to tackle this, to actually, like Per is saying, very hard to tackle these attractive stories. We need to think innovatively about doing that. Is there people in your circles now who do think deeply about this, who, who want to fix it and, and how are they going to go about it? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, discussion about it. Uh, there was an action plan published by the Commission, but it just didn't function or work. So we're revisiting it again. The difficulty, of course, is when you start to uh, assess disinformation and how it's spread and misinformation, how it's disseminated around on, on the internet and social media, 
to control that, the fear is that you will risk freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Uh, and to get that balance is going to be very, very difficult. But there is inherently a view now that we have to do something because we can't allow a situation. If I look, COVID is obviously the most immediate issue we're discussing and the disinformation that was spread about that. A lot of that was done very, very maliciously. It wasn't just people planting stories, but there were plant, uh, entities were planting stories to undermine states, to undermine health services across, across the European Union. So there was quite a nefarious effort by some actors in, in this particular area. But beyond that, the big challenge will be toward democracies, uh, to the functioning of governments, uh, to interference in elections. And, and that has been very evident even in the context of Brexit, um, in the States, uh, and in some uh, regional elections already in, in, in the European Union, you've seen interference from outside actors, from outside the European Union itself. So we can't allow that to happen. So the trick is to get the balance between what is policing the internet and what is um, uh, making sure we don't interfere with freedom of expression and freedom of speech. But like some of the, for example, the 5G, that, that was being pushed quite a lot from what we can gather uh, by uh, Russia uh, in particular, or by elements within Russia. And of course, this is just to slow the potential rollout of 5G. 5G will give a, a, an economy um, greater advantages over those that don't have 5G. So it, it's also being used as a, as, a, as a ploy to delay economies from coming back out of the COVID uh, crisis and undermining um, confidence in governments in particular. But just uh, like one particular simple case was the army were coming onto the streets. Um, that was a big rumor that just, just started at the very start of COVID. And I was standing outside my old constituency office uh, in Cork and uh, there was two women saying, oh Billy, we heard that the army are coming on. It's very sad for our country that our country has been taken over by the army. And I was trying to explain that, look, this was not going to happen. And of course, as I was, there was two army trucks on the way up the Collins Barracks drove beyond me. Uh, so it undermined my ability to convince them that it wasn't the case. But they had heard that from a friend who had read it uh, from some other person's daughter's uh, WhatsApp uh, grouping. And it just kept spreading. But that's at a local level. But that undermined the confidence of those people in, in their own community. But you can undermine confidence of a population in its government or its, in its health services. We were lucky in Ireland. We were lucky in Ireland because the government got ahead of it, in fairness. And uh, Tony Hullohan, for example, uh, the chief medical officer, you know, was very much out front. He became a very trusted figure. So we were very lucky. And we don't, and we're not targeted as much as other countries by nefarious actors. Uh, we're lucky that way. But that won't last forever either. Uh, Chris Mead, I saw you nodding away there, but just wanted to ask about the journals ramping up because you mentioned earlier that it's not something that we've had to deal with before, um, but we obviously did have a fact-checking initiative. Um, but how do you scale up um, the team to, to deal with it at a local level, like what Billy was saying when there's two women on the street, you know, being quite upset that the army is coming because they believe that WhatsApp message. So um, how, do, how did you ramp up the team? What was uh, the response and... I guess any any lessons from that as well. So our whole thing was we decided to treat fact checks in the same way that we would usually focus on the way we'd usually treat breaking news. So we used to spend probably around two days. A reporter would spend about two days um, working on a fact check, writing it, getting over the line. Um, sometimes more, sometimes a bit less. But with coronavirus, we just had to be a lot more nimble and focus on debunking stories instead. Because, like Billy says, you know, if if these women are talking about the army being on the streets 
you need to, and it, like that's causing harm to people. Like people are reading things that could affect their lives. If they think that, you know, drinking tea is going to prevent them from getting coronavirus or, you know, some of the really dodgy health things that were shared, health, health um, approaches that were shared on, on Facebook in particular and on WhatsApp, you know, it kind of felt like we don't have time to sit around and spend like four days on a fact check when there are people out there and it may be affecting um, actual people's lives. So what we did was we, our team of 20 reporters are all trained in fact checks. So we were able to scale up the volume really quickly and prioritize the fact checks over other stories that we would have been working on instead. Um, and so as a point of comparison, we did, in, so in March and April last year, which is in 2019, we did a total of seven fact checks across the entire two months. Um, and in March of April and this year, we did 53, which was almost one a day. Um, and it's not like there was nothing happening in March of April last year. It was just that there was so much misinformation this year that it just, it made sense. Like if it, it, like sometimes as journalists, you, you want to feel useful. And I think we really felt useful in terms of being able to do this and being able to say, here, you got that message on WhatsApp today. Here's a debunk. Look, that is not true. Don't believe it. Um, and I think we set up a WhatsApp account, as we mentioned, so that people could forward us on the messages they saw and fact check, um, which was really helpful. It was, you know, and it also made us realize that, you know, if we, there were a couple of messages that we would have gotten maybe a couple of hundred times. So while it's hard to gauge how much a message is being shared on WhatsApp, if several hundred people made the effort to go and you know read the journal, find the WhatsApp number and send it on, I think you can extrapolate that the number of people who actually received the message was probably an awful lot higher. Yeah, and one of the things that you and Nicola both said is a lot of these things, they have common threads between a lot of the false stories were the same false stories that were happening in Germany or Singapore or Australia. Um, so is there something in fact checkers coming together in a more seamless manner um, to counter this rather than being a bit more reactive? Yeah, I think so. Um, and full fact where Nicola works actually put out a great report this week. She mightn't, she might be mentioning this, but it talks about the trends in five European countries. Um, and Ireland isn't included, but it's very similar to our experience. It talks about, you know, 5G, health, um, cures, vaccine, Bill Gates gets his own section and it's really interesting. So I think it's, it's well worth a read for anybody um, who wants to take a look afterwards. But so among fact checkers, we had had a kind of a network of fact checkers before last year. Um, it was actually for the European elections. It was the first time we set up kind of this huge cross-country alliance. It was looking at trends, they spread, making them fact checks available to the public. Um, so it was like a practice run for coronavirus in some ways. Um, to, be totally, to be totally honest, it didn't have a huge impact because there just wasn't the same volume of misinformation as there has been now. What it did do was it allowed us to understand the logistics of it and the scale. So when the pandemic started and fact checkers were seeing all the same things around the world, we set up a, lot, a network called the Coronavirus Facts Alliance. And we were able to use the learnings from the European election um, network and kind of create this huge network that had never been done before. Um, so it was almost 100 fact checkers around the world, including the journal, um, sharing fact checks, sharing them with the public. And I think in the end, we published almost 7,000 fact checks in total, got like a million page views. Um, and it was great. It was, it was really, you know, impressive just to see this kind of, kind of coming together of fact checks to be able to try and stop the misinformation um, from being shared. And I know the head of the International Fact Checking Network was talking about this last week, and she said that the collaboration has proved that... Um, collaboration is much stronger than any law or regulation could be in stopping misinformation. And I don't fully agree. I think it's something to kind of chew over. I think we do need laws and regulations for the social media platforms because they're the ones that are allowing false news to spread. But I think the collaboration has shown what can be done. So it's more of a starting point rather than a bandage or the full, the full treatment. Awesome. 
Billy, there's a question from an audience member, Aidan O'Brien, um, along the same lines. He says, we seem to only be able to react to disinformation. What proactive steps can be taken on both a national and an EU level to counter disinformation rather than just react to it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just a, the spontaneity of um, the internet and social media is, is the challenge. But I mean, we do have to get to a stage where we have to accept that Europe has to play a lead role in this. I don't think that at a nation state level, we can address this. So the European Union must become uh, to the fore. Uh, there has to be stronger collaboration between the member states. Uh, we have to, for example, we have to have a database uh, put in place uh, across the European Union. So the actors that are um, involved in this or the entities that are involved in this information, at least they, you know, we, we can track them to some extent on, a, on a, an international basis uh, and, and track them from that perspective. We also need to ensure that the, the platforms hosting have obligations as well. And, and that clearly, you know, they have very detailed um, algorithms now, for example. So, you know, they can really pinpoint cohorts of people, um, age profiles, regional areas, so they can really drill down to certain cohorts and, and target them. So we need to be conscious of that as well. The other key area that's critically important, this goes back to fact check, is we have to have a robust independent media uh, that's well resourced. And of course the media across Europe is going through a very difficult time uh, because of COVID, but even in advance of that, we've seen a, a, a rapid drop in, um, in, the, in the mainstream media's uh, from the point of view of loss of income. And that is undermining the, the ability of journalists to go along, to investigate, to fact check, uh, to, to analyze a story, to see where it's coming from and, and, and who's propagating it. And that requires resourcing. So the media is a fundamental cornerstone in our democracies. We've always said that. But in the context of where we are now with regard to disinformation across um, media platforms and social media platforms, we need to have a strong independent media that's really resourced. And that's going to be a huge challenge. But just to your community. Where will those resources come from, Billy? Well, I think we have to be creative as, a, as, as, as governments and as people. I mean, we have to support the media um, and that might require, um, uh, you know, direct support into the media. For example, I mean, local papers, regional papers, they are all struggling. Uh, you know, you, you can lose them, but uh, you lose an entity that actually does provide uh, verifiable information to the community. You go to national media, they will have to be resourced as well. So, I mean, these things sometimes have to be resourced by the taxpayer if we are to ensure that we have a robust, independent capability to actually address um, the, the problems of disinformation. So, I mean, there are choices uh, and you have the direct resourcing, but I mean, if we continue as we are, we'll end up with a social media platform being the only outlet for many people with lots of disinformation and misinformation. And that simply is not good for the individual citizen. And it's certainly not good from a democratic point of view and from a, uh, the government's point of view. So, but the European Union is taking this very seriously. And it's just not because of COVID, but it is be beyond that. We, we've seen, and there's detailed dossiers now of interference in, in countries, elections process, uh, and, and the running of a state. So, uh, and, and reference to be made to Russia. Russia is a very, very big actor in all of this. It really is beginning to uh, undermine um, the European Union. It is, a, it is a policy of Russia to undermine the European Union. So, for example, in recent times, because of COVID, you would see targeted um, interventions at immigrant communities across the European Union that they were being blamed for COVID. It was um, migrants coming from Africa, it was migrants coming from Syria, and this was really being pushed out disinformation, disinformation, but that was to pit uh, people against each other in, in countries with high immigrant populations. So you have all that, and that is all done because they have detailed research and algorithms available to them. 
Hair, is that your experience? And do you think that there's more that can be known to counter disinformation rather than just react to it? I think that, uh, as Billy says, professional journalism is a very, very good remedy against uh, disinformation, and especially local, local community journalism. Small newspapers that are professionally run with professional journalists who are able to understand the difference between like random claims and real facts. And this is part of the, the activities that we are doing in our, our team. We have a, a task to perform trainings for members, uh, member state journalists. Uh, we are engaged in different kinds of projects for raising awareness on disinformation. We have, a, we're maintaining a database, a perfectly public available database with currently around 9,000 cases of disinformation where you can study patterns and tropes and topics and tendencies on disinformation, how it's spread, how it's done, who is spreading and who is saying what. So stuff can be done and we also have a very, very strong element of proactive uh, work in our team. We are reaching out to the journalists in Eastern Europe, in partnerships countries, in Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia and everywhere to enhance the professionalism and to stop uh, normal media being used as platforms for malign disinformation. And that's it from The Explainer. We're going to leave the webinar there. But if you were enjoying the chat, you'll find extra questions and a Q&A with the audience on thejournal.ie. We'll link to it from this week's article for The Explainer as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. And a big thank you to Nicola, Pear, Billy and Christine for all of their work on the webinar. If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few months for you to support our journalism. It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fall drastically during the COVID pandemic, but we are and want to keep providing you and the rest of our 800,000 users with valuable, accessible journalism. Loads of you felt it's important for society to have that open access to news and good information, just like this podcast, and have contributed. A lot of you asked if there was a way you could give more regularly. We now have options to become a regular contributor. And if this is something you'd like to do, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan and producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to them. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.